What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 84 of Dart Against Humanity. As I record this episode, it's uh, depressing to me that women aren't safe anywhere in this space. Uh, they're not safe at Complex. They're not safe at OK Player slash OK Africa. Uh, they're not safe at Remezcla. Um, they're not safe even at a supposedly progressive label like Rhyme Sayers. And in and, um Things like Versus, they're going to have, they were going to have um, Jada Kiss and Fabulous. Fabulous is a known abuser. Uh, you do a podcast wh- where people come on and they're supposed to talk about like issues like Black Lives Matter and uh, defunding the police. And who do you bring into the discussion? None other than Russell Simmons. And there's a documentary that's out right now on HBO Max. Uh, telling all of the stories about his serial abuse, sexual and um, and otherwise, and it just seems like women aren't valued anywhere you look, and it's depressing. Although you kind of know it, but to be reminded constantly sucks. That being the case, this podcast is actually about. Two different articles that came out earlier this week, one on June 22nd and one on June 23rd. Uh, the June 22nd one is about Cortex. It's called Cortex, the mysterious French band behind some of rap's most majestic moments. And it's by Andre G. It's on Microchop, which is Gino uh, Sorcinelli's, uh portal. Uh, the next one was released the next day. And... It's um, Digging Deep, how a sample spotter discovered a long-lost MF Doom flip by Connor Herbert, and it's on DJ Booth. So I'm going to talk about these two articles and how they represent two different generations and how they approached uh, the phenomenon of sampling and the culture behind it. It'll make sense soon. All right, so with the Cortex episode, I'm Issue. Um, basically it talks about how like MF Doom's um, food is a landmark moment in rap. And it talks about, um, Mad Libs one beer, but then it just breaks down. It is a, it's a cortex song. Huid October 1971 with the, uh, with the vocal samples. And um, the French musician Alain Mion is uh, behind it. Talks about casual fans may not understand Mion's musical impact, but your favorite producers do. He's reportedly France's most sampled artist with Who Sampled, tracking 116 samples of Mion and 124 of Kotex, some overlapping. The five-piece band he formed in 1974 were musicians like Alain Gandolfi and Jeff Hutner is a sample of uh, is a sample source of some of 21st century rap's most mar- memorable moments, including Rick Ross's grandiose a- Amsterdam, Wiz Khalifa's nothing to do moment, um, nothing to something old visions, and Lupe Fiasco's lyrical masterpiece mural. Now here's the thing, I don't remember mural. I n- don't think I ever heard Wiz Khalifa's visions, and Rick Ross's Amsterdam. I heard through other people. I never personally owned the album. The reason why this article exists is because it's a sample source, a sample material that started out on the underground, but then became mainstream. 
Now, this has happened several times in the past. However, the entire culture was different in terms of what's underground and mainstream. All right. So CD and vinyl distributor and former independent music magazine Force Exposure called Cortex a mythical band with an accurate assessment of them and Mion. Alan Mion has no in English videos available online. They don't have a Wikipedia page. There's not much information available about Morel Dalbraid, a band singer whose ethereal voice serves as the highlight of so many Cortex sampling compositions. La, 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 la. So um, they just run through the history of uh, he just runs through the history of Cortex and where it was sampled. Uh, but here's the thing, too. It keeps mentioning who sampled a website that older heads do not fuck with. Uh, one of the things I called them diggers and snitches. Uh, so. They've been sampled in songs by notable names as Fat Joe, Currency, Logic, Dave East, uh, the rapist abuser with three X's in his name, Mellow Hype, as well as Earth Gang and J.I.D. These are all well-known groups, artists that get covered in mainstream blog media and have over the past decade. So they're very visible. There's nothing really underground, super underground here. You know, Rick Ross has done for everything a dope boy ever wanted with Staley. Uh, Dave and Don dip Dow Brace cascading. Ooh, Lord vocals in the composition like strawberry and chocolate. I've never heard this song. Ross's big moment with Cortex is cardiac produced Amsterdam. Ross also joined Game and Jeezy for Beautiful of Snowman's 2014 Seen It All, the autobiography. These are not albums I own. So this is why, you know, this group is being written about because they did these songs that are well known and on major label and mainstream recordings. Now. This is not the only time somebody's written about Cortex. Cortex is a group that if you are a head, an underground rap fan, a beathead, a digger, you knew about. Cortex was a group that we knew about, we didn't really talk about, okay? Because the culture is different for the older cats that grew up digging. At a time, so I, of course, grew up digging for records at a time where sample sources were not listed in the album credits or the liner notes. You heard a song, you heard a sample, you had to just go search for it. Okay, you did. And the way we went about it was different because the technology was different, because the culture was different and the um, resources available to us were extremely limited. Okay. That being the case, I'm looking for an article. It's called um, on TripleOT.com. It's called Cortex and Sampling, Crown Jewels of the Underground by Brandon Johnson. 
It starts out with, amidst its grassroots origins, hip-hop has heavily relied on the reappropriation and reimagining of past sounds and images. The very essence of DJing requires some of some sort of pre-recorded audio to be scratched, mixed, and flipped into a danceable or otherwise enjoyable groove. As a fan, this side of the culture is wholly enjoyable, but as a writer and reviewer, I and many others recognize the complications that arise from the practice that eventually came to be sampling. On its face, sampling is com comparable to what other genres incorporate. Artists frequently create their own creative renditions of tracks of yesteryear, whether through direct recreation of sound or by simple interpolation. The difficult for the hip-hop movement lay in the original disconnect between the performers and the record labels. Although in 1979, Curtis Blow became the first rapper signed to a label, Mercury Records, DJing and unauthorized mixing was already a staple in the genre for at least a decade. The connection between past recordings and hip-hop performers was and remains indelible, despite the difficulties imposed, and rightly so, by record labels and publishing deals. So, we go through... And then we come down to... One such act doesn't originate from the continental USA. Rather, French composer Alain Mion founder of the 1970s jazz funk ensemble Cortex, crafted the group's debut, Tropu Blue, which translates directly to Blue Herd, for release on July 15, 1975 by Disque Esperance. Recorded in just two days, the 14-track album has become a staple sample fodder for hip-hop producers, ranging from Rick Ross's God Forgives I Don't to Flying Lotus's Alter Eagle Captain Murphy's Duality. In a short documentary by Gasface, Mion discusses some of his influences, views on his prevalence in hip-hop, his sample rates, and more. Alright? The 12th track on Royce the 5'9's 6th studio album. Dope. Rod Royce the 5'9 Layers. Then we talk about Mural by uh, with, uh, by Lupe Fiasco. Mighty Morphin Foreskin, Captain Murphy, produced by Flying Lotus, same person. These are mentioned. All in this article, right? Talking about Cortex, who's one of the most sampled uh, French groups in history. They had been sampled quite often. Been used in a whole bunch of songs, didn't come into prominence or usage until recently. The article I just read you, Triple OT, is approximately three, four years old. Now that's relatively new. So when I think about digging and sample sources and searching for that album that people used a lot. I instantly think about stuff like back in the days when I was really into um, the Beat Nuts or groups that were in um, the Constipated Monkeys crew. I was fascinated by this album that they kept referencing and sampling. Uh, mostly uh, cats around the Beat Nuts, um, curious. Uh, hard to obtain, um, and especially KMD. KMD were fascinated by this album. I'm not black. I ain't black. Um, and you would hear this voice. 
There was a nigga today. There was a there be a nigga. There's a nigga yesterday, and I'll be a nigga tomorrow. On like what a nigga you know, it would be sampled and they'd be referenced all throughout. Um, their material, especially the second album, KMD's second album, which was shelved. Um, I'm of course talking about Gylon Kane's The Blue Gorilla from 1970. I became fascinated with this album because of the members of Constipated Monkey Crew, who were named after a specific song, a constipated monkey, a line that he says on the incredible The Blue Gorilla album. After I found out that they were sampling Gylon Kane, original member of the um, Lost Poets, I was like, I need to hear this album. I went looking for it. I asked around. I found it. I heard it. I was as mesmerized by this album as they were. And I got it. Now, mind you, the people who went looking for Gylon Kane's The Blue Gorilla, it wasn't a big group of people. You might find two or three people who were talking about it. And it was just you two or three. At most, there were five. It was a small group within the community of rap fans who knew about this album, who who were seeking it out, who would go to record stores, vinyl shops, what have you, asking around for it. And it was a small group or circle. It wasn't everybody. Because it wasn't really a mainstream thing. Now, also during this time, you learn about other things. And of course, the knowledge of these particular things doesn't extend to past um, heads. So you have heads, you have people that are really into something, the people that are well known, the, the, the cognoscenti, and then you have like the casual fan. They're different spaces. They're people that know certain things that you might think are obscure or esoteric. And then they're the things that, that people generally know. Two different spaces. For instance, going back years, there were certain things, certain labels that we knew about digging for records and samples going back to the 90s and to the early zeros. I'm talking about labels like um, KPM Music. Labels like Bhutan Music, CTI Records. Labels like Strata East and Black Jazz. When you go digging, these were things that you went looking for that everybody didn't know about. Right. Everybody wasn't going looking for GRP records to sample. There were certain artists and labels and producers and musicians that we all knew about that we weren't telling everybody about because it was a small community of people that would go looking for this. 
I, of course, living in Boston, went to different record stores like I had Looney Tunes in my backyard, had um, record labels. I mean, record labels. I had uh, record stores like Mystery Train. Um, I had other record. I had other um, record stores in my backyard, like In Your Ear, where um, Boston Bob used to work, and a whole bunch of other people that were like really into like deep knowledge of records where they would go to the um the different uh expos and sell records and 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 suggest samples to like well-known hip hoppers and DJs and producers in New York. I'm talking about that space. This is these are the things that I was privy to and that was hip to. But the way we went about finding these records or searching for samples was completely different because we were older. And we came up at a different time. Again, it wasn't until after the Bismarcky case happens and... um. The ruling comes down December 17th, 1991, where uh, Bismarcky illegally sampled Gilbert O'Sullivan's Alone Again Naturally, where we get the modern era where if you sample something, you have to list it in your line of notes. You have to clear it. Now... We had some albums that would clear samples and list samples in 1991. But after 1992, supposedly all of them did that. Now, there were two main albums that didn't do this, didn't list the sample sources in the line notes, even if they had to clear them. Those two albums being Daily Operation by Gangstar and the other one being uh, Mecca and the Soul Brother by Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. We were fixated on these albums because they were so dense with samples and source material that we couldn't identify, but we wanted to. So the same way that somebody went off and was finding all these different Cortex samples and and trying to think them, we were trying to identify what all the samples were on this these amazing albums. Now. I say that because this particular article that came out on DJ Booth is written by Connor Herbert, and it's about a 23-year-old who was searching for this white whale of a sample. Now, I'll repeat, 23 years old, he was searching for the sample that he considered his Moby Dick, his white whale, um, and it was Arrowroot, which is found on um, Special Herbs, the 10 album or CD collection of instrumentals from um, MF Doom. Uh, also ends up on Next Levels on King Ghidorah, Take Me to Your Leader. So... And you have to remember that um, 
This is a 2003 album. And this guy is 23 years old in 2020. So his introduction to the song, what have you, is different. His time, because he, he was six when the album came out, or five or six when the album came out. His introduction to it, or searching for it, pretty much came through the world of the internet. And um, the message board community. And the comment section of YouTube. Now, for those of you that don't understand how much of a difference this is from physically going out to record stores, digging, trying to find a particular sample source, getting your hands dirty versus doing it in the digital era when you never had to do it the other way. I'm not going to say that the sleuthing or the digging isn't valid. It's just the the way it's done and the culture behind it because you're far removed from the um, the protocol and a lot of the um, rules, I'm using air quotes, that we were under in terms of digging and revealing sources and what have you. And I'm going to get into that more. So he's trying to find... Um, this sample. Now he goes to places like the breaks. These are places we ridiculed and didn't use. Who sampled the breaks? We're like, man. Now, anyways, the article goes on. It's a question that's endured since at least 2004 when the breaks user basement productions asked after the arrowroot sample. That shit is hotty added, but as undeniable as the instrumental was, it didn't ring any bells. A 2009 guest pegged the sample sample is a demo of Cleo's apartment, a track from Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man soundtrack. But it doesn't seem like that early version ever exists, let alone matches the profile. A few years later, suspicion fell on the work of Ahmad Jamal. With some 55 records to sift through, the lead went nowhere. It wasn't until 2015 that Buzz started forming around a new lead. I remember on the old MF Doom forum, someone said he heard a sample on this BT Jazz promo from the early 2000s. Wrote, User word is bon word is banned. Madlib says Doom sampled a BET Jazz commercial for his newest album, not that long after King Ghidorah came out. Buzz might be a bit generous. With enthusiasm about the lead muted, the ever ensuing search had come up against a new obstacle: an inability to activate the lead. It's hard enough sourcing late 90s BT footage, let alone material from a low-key jazz-oriented spinoff, and for years, the information that brought about direction to the hunt also tied it down. If anything, it seemed more likely the original song was lost to time. However, a few months ago, a comment from user Real, uh, Rolio started appearing beneath the Arrowroot videos. I repeat, a comment from user Rolio started appearing beneath the Arrowroot videos. Help me find the Arrowroot next level sample. It is from the BT on Jazz show called Impressions. It is the intro tune. This was written in the comment section of the videos on YouTube. Which, in my era, 
Huge violation. Royo had been a producer for almost half his life and at 23 that makes him more seasoned than most. It's a passion as Bridges' youth and his, and his maturity, seeing him through high school carrying well into his college years. Now, for me, when I was 23, um, I had gotten into hip-hop, rap, uh, maybe late 78, early 1979, before there were records. The first records come out between spring... And winter 1979. Okay? So, I'm four. I'm three and four. I turned four August 1979. When I turned four, right after I turned four, rap records started coming out. Um, Very slowly at first. And then, the explosion happens in 1979, October 1979... And at the same time, I remember I was listening to Prince's uh, Prince, uh, Possessed by Patrice Russian. And on the radio, they were playing a song called Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Okay. Just to give you reference. So I was four. Now, fast forward 19 years from there, where is 1998? So I've been searching for samples and been into the digging world for 19 of my 23 years. I can't say that that's the same case with him. And I can't also say that from ages four all the way to, for me, 15, 16, I had to look for samples without having any real leads. And I had to go get my hands dirty in the early 90s. Now, that being said, it's important for people to find out that about the songs they like. And I can't speak for other people, but for me, Arrowroot, he tells me, is compli uh, contemplative. It's one of those songs that I can always listen to. I have a special bond with it. I was looking through the comments and I started to get interested. I found out BT on Jazz was a cool channel on American television with lots of stuff to sample. And I think that's how it started off. He's not American. He's from overseas. Never watched BET. Knew about BET through a message board. Knew about the show through a message board. Now, mind you, I watched BET. I watched BET on jazz. I used to watch that show when it came on all through the 90s, the early zeros. You should just flip through it, just watch it, just to hear the music. He never had that experience. He had no connection to bet on jazz at all. Never heard it for himself, never saw it for himself, 
There are a lot of us that grew up, some of us who were actually used to this, like, oh, I remember those commercials, but I never watched it. He didn't even have that. He had no reference point for who the guests were, who the hosts were, or when it was on and heads used to actually listen to it. I'm not sure how it started searching. I remember contacting the label who first released the Special Herb series, referring to Female Fun Records responsible for volumes one and three of the 10 record course. There was a producer who was working with MF Doom, Peter Augustin. More than some label lackey, Augustin was a common, uncommonly close confidant of the villain, having co-created the Special Herbs concept with Doom at the turn of the century. He points to a 2003 Doom interview Augustine released just last year, which find him in candid conversation with the soft, soft-spoken enigma. It seemed about as solid lead as one could find, but the inner details were hazy. He pressed the first Special Herbs release, Volume 1, 2,000 LPs, and, couldn't clear, and didn't clear the sample. And then, of course, there's the article about Mr. Fantastic. The sample had some leaks, some clues, and there were people who knew or could give some information. The rumor of the BT connection had endured. By the time Royal Royal uh, started his search, some were even claiming to remember the inst- the interstitial uh, melody itself. A show called Jazz Central offered enthusiast Sire Soprano. It had two different intros, and this song played into commercial breaks somewhere in the very late '90s to very early zeros. Again. He doesn't have any connection to this. He's sourcing this from other people online. It's not people he's talking to. He's not going to record stores. He's not hanging out. He's not meeting these people face to face and they're sharing information. He's reading it online. And these people are thousands of miles away. Okay. We already had a lot of information, but we just didn't know how to search for it. Royal says to me, explaining how a lasting lead sat unpursued for the better part of a decade. I searched every platform, Vimeo, YouTube, Daily Motion for Jazz Central videos. And once I found Angela Stribling on Facebook, I contacted her. I need to stress this. I know Angela Stribling is because I used to watch BET. I used to go over my father's house because he actually had cable. This is 84, 85. This is back in the, you can bet on it, black entertainment TV these days. I remember seeing Angela Stribling on BT on different shows. And then as time passed on into the 90s, the late 90s, when BT um, grew and got like a lot of money and it started having like all these different ventures, then it was like, we're going to have spinoff channels and bet on jazz, you know, became a thing. And Angela Stribling moved from normal BT where it had younger people now, you know, Rachel from Caribbean Rhythms, you know, like they moved a bunch of people over and like they had to find shit for Sherry Carter to do, you know, um, and then she ends up over here. He has no idea who Angela Stribling is. No connection to her whatsoever. And he's face is messaging her on Facebook. We continue. Stribling uh, seemed an ideal link. The so-called Empress of Media spent four years at the ho- as the host of flagship Jazz Central, the more underground-focused jazz discovery, and the industry-oriented jazz scene. All gigs that might have familiarized her with the tune. A 23-year-old is heading up Angela Stribling over a sample source. 
from a show she was on. Eventually, she responded. Surprised he'd escaped from the e-purgatory of message requests. However, Stribling didn't know the sample. With Stribling unfamiliar, the trail that Arrowroot seemed a little frostier. Sire was my only lead, and I had a feeling he was rambling. He said a recording of the source was at his mom's crib in Queens. This Saturday, I'm going to send you the VHS of the audio clip. He didn't come through. I tried to call him like maybe 10 times. He just didn't respond anymore. So he's diving deeper to the BT connection. He hits up John Robinson, a.k.a. Lil Psy. Of Science of Life. He hit him up. And his response is, I wish I knew. I was in the studio with Doom when he sampled it from the BT Jazz Impression Show, but we never knew the original song. He sampled it off the TV. I have asked a dozen music aficionados and no answers yet. Now, for those of you that are too young to know, one of the things we used to do, my um, younger brother had uh, EPS-16 and an ASR-10, the late 90s. What we would do was our room was pretty much a full, a full studio. One side of the room was my brother had his equipment, his bed. We had a big window. The other side of the room, it was a huge room too. The other side of the room was my bed. You could fit three beds in that room. The other side of the room was my bed. Uh, and there was another window, another huge window. But I was away from the window. We had our TV set up there. We had this big, huge um, setup with a desk. And then next to it, we had our TV we had our video game system set up. We had a huge, we had a radio, but what we had was two VCRs stacked on top of each other, uh, uh, the, feed, the feed directly into each other. And then we had a tape record, I had a tape recorder. What I would do is I would put in tapes in the VCR that were either anime or, or movies that we dubbed from the video store and I would take these and I would record uh, passages from movies film dialogue uh, sound effects Japanese phrases from different anime films we used to get anime films from um, Super VHS recorded from Laserdisc Straight from Japan. OAVs. Um, anime. Like new shit. So everything from Crying Freeman. To uh, Giver. Anything you could imagine. We had it. And then we would record off the TV. So at the time. Um, Dragon Ball Z. Was playing on this channel called the International Channel before it hit the Cartoon Network. It was uncut, but it was in Japanese. But you would get all the sound effects, ah! all that shit. So we would record this shit off the TV, and I would, um, any movie, any TV show like that, I would get the dialogue. I take the dialogue directly from um, Carlito's way. I take the dialogue directly from um, uh, any movie you could imagine. 
and I would take it to him, give it to him, and he would sample it in the ASR or the EPS. I, I have tapes upon tapes, and I just, I just catalog what everything is. The movie Wizards. An illuminating history. Weehawk scream. All that shit. Now, this is common practice for us. Sampling, making beats, making material. We just sample straight off the TV. Sometimes it'd be 3 a.m. and we would just record whatever was on a particular channel. If they're playing an old movie from the 70s. And we would just sample that shit. He, not him not familiar with these things. So he finds out that there was a guy named David Tial, a Senegalese man from Canada who hosts Jazz Impressions. Jazz Impressions had a bunch of um, different guests. He doesn't know this. He finds this out later. So um, he discovers, I think Jazz Impression had maybe 40 show hosts because every new festival they were covering, there was a new host. So there was a Spanish-American guy, Chichi Rodriguez, and he was willing to help me, but he didn't respond after a couple of messages. They didn't quite understand what I was doing. Um, James Zimmerman was the last host I had to contact, Royal tells me, still stunned by his own luck. An excited post in the Arrowroot Facebook group. There's an Arrowroot Facebook group. Broke the biggest development yet. Zimmerman was the first BT member who recognizes it. James dove into his own archives and searched for a distant impressions episode, but as the discovery loomed, Royal himself disappeared. Then you discover James Zimmerman is the guy who was there, and an episode of Jazz Impressions, the intro, you find it. And you hear that, uh, you've discovered that the VHS rip landed in Royal's inbox. The final moments of a two-decade mystery were a little more than a scroll and click. The VHS static word about is the azure bays of San Sebastian, a familiar fill dropping into the instantly recognizable melody. The longtime mystery dissipating into a stunned surprise. The song rode out, moving into new territory, only partially drowned out by impassioned yells, fist pumps, and Hail Marys. It was rare for me to find James Zimmerman because he was a one-time host. Zimmerman is central to the clip as the song scores it, standing above the San Sebastian beaches and spotlighting the jazz to come. It's ironic the jazz had already gotten sued. The opening slice of smooth jazz, smooth sex goodness would one day become the main attraction. So he discovered the arrowroot sample after searching online. For the better part of a, or for more than a decade, going through different uh, sources, uh, different message boards and different users. And there were Facebook groups about it. This is how I'm going to end this episode. I'm going to tell my own personal story. There was an album that I had back in 1992 by a group that originated in Boston. The group is called Gangstar. Gangstar released an album called Daily Operation. On Daily Operation, there was a song. On this song, there were horns.
There's no sample sources listed on this album. I needed to find out what the fuck these horns were from. Where did these horns come from? Where did Premier and or Guru find these horns? I was obsessed with them. You could ask my younger brother. Again, we both grew up digging for records, uh, sampling. I was going to be a DJ, ended up not doing it. Was around a bunch of scratch DJs, a bunch of people who produced. So I became like part of a production team battery with my younger brother and his friends. And then later, my boy Karif, who record, who are who uh, produced as Vanguard. He did uh, songs for OC, uh, KRS One, you know, a bunch of other folks. Uh, he would come over and he would make beat CDs. We bring his MPC 2000 in a bag, in a military bag, come over. He'd burn some beat CDs and he'd be like, I'm bringing this one to L Fudge. I'm bringing this one to KRS. I'm bringing this one to OC. I'm bringing this one to um, uh, name a rapper, you know. Uh, but this is the era I come up in. Now, 1992, I'm searching, searching. 93, I'm searching for this. I discover that, all right, this record had to come from somewhere between likely 1964 to 1969. It's a jazz record. And the lead person likely plays horns because that's what's featured. I'm going to find this record. By 1994, I'd kind of like eased off on it. I'm like, I've been searching for two years. It's whatever. However, I buy a tape by a group called Shades of Lingo. Shades of Lingo were down with Eric Sermon. Um, They had a song called uh, Mad Flavors was the first single. I see the album View to a Kill is on sale for $6.99. I look at my brothers like, yeah, let's get that. We buy it. We look at the line of notes it's like, oh shit, Showbiz, Diamond D. Like, yo, there's some people on this fucking album, man. This shit might be hot. We didn't use the term hot, but dope, ill, not fresh. It's 1994. I play the I play the tape. There's a song called "Think I Give a Fuck." The horns on the song go. Oh, then it goes. And I look at my brother. He looks at me. Holy shit. It's the same horns. We go to our case. Yes, we had a case full of full of cassette tapes. Open it up. Play the same song. I believe it's too deep. Off Gangstar. Same fucking horns. Now remind mind you, there are no samples sources listed on this album. Okay? They didn't list any of the samples sources. Same thing that they did with um uh Pete Rocker, CL Smooth, Mechanic Soul Brother. Didn't list any of the samples, which made people go look for them even more. I like, yo, they didn't list samples, 
but they should list it in this tape. Go to the liner notes. Go to the album credits. It's not listed. Why? Because the rules were. If Premiere didn't reveal what the sample was, we could clear it, but we're damn near got gonna list it because we're not gonna do that shit to Premiere. If Pete cleared cleared it and sampled it or didn't clear it and sample it, we're not going to list it on this album because we're not going to put Pete out there. That's a violation. Do you hear me? So I'm like, shit. Diamond D ain't, Diamond D is fucking boys. Diamond D, I believe, do song. Like Diamond D is boys with Premiere. So he's not going to list it either. So I'm even more... Dogged and determined to find this fucking sample. Where are these fucking horns from? I throw myself into looking. I go to all the the regular record store haunts, go all over Boston, uh, into Cambridge, Austin, Brighton. Um, and I do find it. I find it. I find a sample source. I find the album. And the album is from 1968. And it's a jazz album. And you know what I did? Word. That's what it is. I didn't even buy the fucking album. Didn't really talk about it much. Except to a few people who went and went on the same search. We talked about it. Said we found it. I've never written it anywhere. I'm not going to reveal what it is now. Why? Because it wasn't revealed by Premiere and it wasn't revealed by Diamond D and nobody has come out from that era and just plainly said what it is. Why? Because it wasn't listed before. I haven't written an article about it and I likely never will. Because the error was different. The time was different. When I, me and Jay Zone used to talk about this a lot. We would listen to DJ Mark the 45 King songs. And we were like, what the fuck did he sample? And be like, yo, this and this go back and forth about that. But the thing is that if we did find what he sampled, it stayed between us or the people who were searching for that shit since the 80s and the early 90s. And it's more of a catch and release thing. You go out, you go bass fishing, you catch the big bass, you take a picture with it, you throw that shit right back in the water. Because that was the culture. That's how we related to the music. Or we kept that shit to ourselves or the people who really cared are the ones that shared that information. Now, that 23-year-old kid did not grow up in an era. He grew up digging digitally. So the rules were completely different. The methods were completely different. The culture is completely different digging online. And 
writing articles about, oh, this is sampled here, here, and here, and here. And when you go on this website, a website we don't fuck with, another website we also don't fuck with, because those websites have gotten people sued. And when you're close to the culture and you're a part of the culture, you completely view things differently. We sit around, old guys sit around and talk about, yeah. Um, I remember when they started coming after the library records. The KPMs, the CTIs, Bruton music. You know, you started getting sued for using the library records. You know, uh, soundtracks, um, high school band albums. The reinterpretations of the band albums. The alternate versions. The 45s done by garage bands or local funk bands that covered somebody else's song. So you didn't have to use the original one to get hit and then you still get sent, then you still get sued. The culture is completely different to people from different eras. And even as a journalist, it's weird how I have to try to um deal with that fact. Like there's certain shit I will never write about. I grew up in a in the blog era coming out where I had friends that would do um song uh deconstructions. And they would reveal all the different elements of a song. And during those early days, 2005, 2006, where they would deconstruct a song, they would, re- they would um, reveal elements of a song that weren't cleared and got somebody fucking sued. On one side, you have some strong journalism. An incredible read. A triumph of adversity over adversity or a triumph of will or a fan discovering something that's like, oh, I've been on this trip with you. And on the other side, it's don't fucking tell anybody. Then on the other side, there's so many sides. You're like, wow, this kid went through all of this to discover a song that's Almost as old as he is. Your 23, the song was released in 2003. And it's been something you've obsessed over online from thousands of miles away. That is the reach and the power of music. But also at the same time. What? So, yeah, that's today's episode of Dart Against Humanity. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'm going to talk. It's going to be episode 85, and I'm actually going to talk about um, 1985 and the films of 1985, especially the teen coming of age films. 
I'm going to do a whole episode on that. All right, then. One.